Luke chapter 7, starting at first one. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the buyer they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Uh, very good morning to you, particularly if you haven't been here before. It's great to have you here at HTC. My name's Ed, I'm on the staff here. It is what we, Sunday, middle of July, that means halfway through Wimbledon. Hope you've been watching it a bit this week. Um, gosh, what tense times. I'm so sorry if you're Scottish. Poor old Andy Murray. Um, very sad news, isn't it? But there are some moments in Wimbledon, aren't there, that you just watch and you just see that top hand top spin forehand, <laughs> that's the phrase, and you can't help but think, oh, wow, did you see that? You turn to the person next to you, that was amazing, wasn't that stunning? You know, Federer was the maestro of that, wasn't he? I don't know if you've ever seen him live, it's just phenomenal, it's just poetry in motion. Uh, and you can't help but say, wow, amazing, marvelling at such play. Well, you know, in our passage today, we have Jesus marveling. You know, there's only two places in the whole of the Bible where Jesus Christ marvels, where he says, did you see that? Look at that. One is in Mark chapter six, where he looks at the lack of faith amongst his people, the Jews of the day, and he marvels. He's like, whoa, where's their faith? But the second and only other time in the whole of the Bible is here, in Luke chapter seven, verse nine, where having seen the centurion's faith, he goes, he says this, verse nine, um, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. And he was amazed at the centurion. Beautiful picture, isn't it, of being amazed at faith. And so there'll be lessons for us, not just about faith 2,000 years ago, but for you and me today in 21st century London. What does faith in Jesus Christ really look like when the rubber hits the road? 
That's what we think about this morning. And I guess there'll be some of us here who, well, we're just looking to the faith, or we've certainly got friends who are sort of on the periphery. We sort of feel we're outsiders looking in, maybe. We're on the fringes. Well, today and the next few weeks, actually, is a great time to come to HTC. Uh, We're beginning this series in Luke's Gospel, Luke 7, 8, and 9, in which we're thinking about the theme, there is no one like Jesus. And we pray, as we open up Scripture, he himself will walk off its pages as the Spirit shows us what he is like. And, and so if you are on the periphery, this is a great Sunday to come because there are two people on the periphery in our story today. The first, well, he's a centurion. He's a Gentile. He's an outsider. He's a Roman soldier in occupied land, Israel, in the first century. And by the standards of the day, well, the Jews would have said, get out, this is our land. Get off my land. Go back to Rome unpopular, unliked. And yet, instead of driving him out, Jesus Christ drives along, uh, draws alongside him. He's one who's come for the outsider, not just the insider. But then there's a widow too. You see it there in verse 11 onwards. A widow who, back then, with no husband, now no children, therefore no money, no land, no hope. Socially speaking, on the bottom of the social ladder. And yet, there she is, a nobody. But for Jesus Christ, she's a somebody. And he makes a detour to minister to her. This is a God who, in Jesus Christ, comes out for those who are on the fringes. So if that's you, which in many ways is all of us, spiritually speaking, there's lessons for you. And lessons for me this morning. So three things we'll think about faith. The first is this, the, the, the helplessness of faith. Secondly, the humility of faith. And thirdly, the hopefulness of faith. So that's where we're going for the next 20, 25 minutes. So firstly then, the, the helplessness of faith. We don't like that word helpless, do we? We're, we're strong, we're sorted, we're Londoners. We don't do helpless. <laughs> but isn't it striking, these two characters side by side? You have the widow who is devastated. She is weeping and weeping and weeping and the whole town is joining her in this weeping, losing her son. And perhaps some of us know that feeling of hopelessness, helplessness at the loss of someone. Grief is a lonely place and some of us might be in it now. So there's her, but then there's also the centurion who, you know, in many ways, he's made it. You know, he's a middle-ranking officer. He's, he's done well. He's done his SAS training. He went to Sandhurst. He did all that malarkey. Some of you know about that. Um, but there, they, there he is with his four by four. He's got 80, 90, 100 juniors under him whom he commands, hence the name Centurion. But then he's got seniors above him who report direct to the emperor, uh, Tiberius Caesar Augustus himself. This is a guy with contacts. He's in the know. You know, he, he knows what he's doing here. He's got a nice home. He's got the pension pot working out nicely. And then, boom, what happens? Verse 2, we're told, his servant who was, high, who was ill, whom he, whom, he high, whom he valued highly, was ill and about to die. Suddenly, this guy who's in command isn't in command. He faces something out of nowhere. And he is helpless. He can't fix it, which is a feeling he's not very used to. And... 
that feeling of helplessness, you and I, of course, for all of us, we can relate to in some shape or form. It might be a silly example. For some of you, you might have had your kids at the breakfast table this morning, and you are trying to get them to eat their cocoa pops, and you get the spoon, and they're just not having it. And you think, oh, no, I'm just give up, and I'll just, I'll come to 11.15 rather than 9.30 because I'm late. <laughs> you feel helpless. Or, more seriously, you know that feeling when that email comes through from the HR. I've had those moments in the office. Not here, thankfully. Uh, uh, yeah, hi, Joe. Who was our HR manager's left? Um, no, Joe, Joe got it. Anyway. Um, and you open it up and you think, oh, no, that doesn't look like a good meeting. Some of us, I know, are facing employment issues and you just, it's out of your hands. You're not in control. You're helpless. Or there's that family tension that's gone on for months and months and months and nothing seems to budge and it just can't be fixed. And you think, I'm helpless here. Or there's that illness that you or that loved one has and it just rears its head again and the doctor scratches her head, not knowing what to say. And then all of us, of course, one day, will face that ultimate moment of helplessness what Christopher Hitchens talks about as mortality. Hitchens was that amazing writer and journalist, author, beautiful book he wrote in his last months of life, 10, 12 years ago, about his own battle with cancer. And it's a really moving book, I recommend it. It's very tender uh, and um, beautiful to read. And he likens the struggle with cancer as if it was like a soldier. He wished it was like being a soldier, something to celebrate, I'm fighting this. But this is how he goes on. He says, um, I wish the image of the ardent soldier was real, but it, actually it's the very last one that will occur to you. You feel swamped, he says, with passivity and impotence, dissolving in powerlessness like a sugar lump in water. What a picture of helplessness. Some of us might have known that experience of cancer. You feel powerless. And what we see in this passage, the first thing we really do see, you know, is that sooner or later in life, that will come our way. It would have happened to some of us already, or it will be around the corner, or for some, we're in the midst of it right now, helpless, powerless. And the thing is, it's so often, it's in that place of powerlessness, and only in that place that you can discover riches about Jesus Christ that you would not have otherwise known. That's what's going on here. It's because of his helplessness he cries out in faith. He wouldn't have got to that point but for that stripping that's happened to him. And sometimes in the Lord's providence, those things come our way, not in a sort of horrible cruel way to harm us but to as as Lewis put it a a severe mercy it feels severe but actually it's a mercy because he's showing us how worthy he is of our faith this is a chance to to lean on him in a whole new way and we we don't like that feeling because we're not in control but sometimes we have to go there or be taken there because it's the only way That's the helplessness of faith. Because times like that, at the end of the day, there's two ways to respond. One is either you are driven away from God in bitterness, in unbelief, in sadness, in disappointment. Or you can be driven to him because there's no one else but him to go to. And it takes helplessness, that experience, to take us there. 
wonder if that's you this morning, how you respond to that feeling of helplessness. Because there is the soil in which faith can so easily, wonderfully grow. That's the first big thing, the helplessness of faith. But let's move on. The secondly, and this is where the story for me becomes so intriguing and surprising. Because we see here what faith consists of, what approaching God can look like. Because here we have, well, we have two ways of approaching Jesus. Presumably the centurion, he's heard about Jesus. He knows he's some cool miracle worker. And so he's, he does something about it. And so he sends these Jewish leaders, verse three, to go and ask him a favor to come and help his um, servant. He sends a top brass, the religious insiders, oh, maybe Jesus will listen to them. And look at the two ways to approach Jesus. One is the way the Jewish leaders do. We see it there in verse four. They pleaded earnestly and they say this, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he's built our synagogue. He's approaching Jesus there on the basis of deserving it, on earning it, on his own performance. Or, verse 7, they're polar opposites. Verse 7, this is what the centurion himself says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to. Do you see the contrast? They are poles apart (laughs) on the surface. You know, two people in church even can look very similar. They're saying all the right stuff, doing all the right stuff, but underneath their hearts are in very different places. One is doing all this stuff as a way of of earning, of striving, of performing, of getting stuff done to win his favour. Another is doing it out out of a sense of Jesus' mercy to him, not his merit that he brings to the table. It's so subtle, but it's so deep. You know, he's there. They're saying uh, he loves our nation and he's given all this dosh to the synagogue. So, you know, have you seen the amount of money I've given to Revitalize 250? You know, of course you haven't because it's all secret. But, you know, I've given quite a bit there. And actually, God, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, remember? Or he loves our nation. You know, I just love coming to church and I love this and I love this ministry here and I love that there and that charity. I'm all behind you know, God, you know what my heart's like. Come on, give us a bit of give and take, yeah? Quid pro quo, let's, let's, it's transactional. Let's do some bartering, yeah? So common, we do that, that quid pro quo, I deserve this. I'm going to approach you on the basis of my goodness, my morality, that I've not had such a bad week today, so it's okay coming to church, for example. And, you know, that, of course, is the soundtrack of life in London. Or L'Oreal, not that I get it. Maybe I should to cover the grey. But L'Oreal, 50 years ago, is still going strong because I'm worth it. That is the tagline of society. I am worth it. I will prove myself and I'll make it. And that could be, well, it could be on Wimbledon. You know, you you get those qualifiers. You'll be there on the the ground courts. Oh, but you keep pressing hard. You will get there onto number one. Actually, no, you work harder. You'll be there, centre court. Sorry, not you, Murray. but, But, you know, that sense of striving and performing, I will get there if I make the grades, or in family life, if I just tow the party line and keep things quiet, that's when I'll get the family acceptance or the approval, whatever it is. All sorts of ways, that culture of, of showing your worth it. 
And if that's true in society and in my, in my psychology, in my upbringing, in my schools, in my sports, well, inevitably it's going to there spill over into my spiritual life too. You know, that is the human default heart position. That's what Luther said in the, in the Reformation, that our default is always to earn and strive and get there by doing the good stuff. And you know that feeling don't you, of things are good between me and God. Yeah, yeah, they're good at the moment because I've, well, I mean, I haven't missed many churches and um, uh, I even listened to Roy's great new song online. I've downloaded it and it is an amazing song. We'll be singing it shortly. And um, do, I think it's free anyway. But, but you know, you, 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 you stack up as you like, if you like, the, on the Monopoly board, the, 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 the stacks of cash. Often on a sort of unconscious, subconscious, low-level way we do it. And that means one of the best symptoms of that is when, we, when we've messed up big time in a, in, a, in, a, in a private, personal way or in a public way maybe, and either a recent way or in a past way, we think so easy for ages, well then my access to God, my approach to him, well that's going to have to cool down for a little while. I'll just have to step back for a while. And I'll just feel really, really, really sorry. And do you know that feeling? I was talking to someone not long ago who who messed up big time by his own admission a couple of years ago. And the weight of it is still on his shoulders, on his heart. Every day. And I asked, you know, how, how close are you to Jesus Christ? If this is Jesus and this is you, where are you at the moment? He sort of went here. This was two cups. This was, he sort of went there and then... Maybe in six months I'll feel a bit more here and then when I sort of really get into church a bit more I'll be here. And, and that sort of approach in which my confidence in approaching Jesus rests on myself and my own worthiness. That is one way to approach God. And that's what these Jewish leaders are doing. And yet, there is another way, a better way, the gospel way. Look at how the centurion himself approaches Jesus. Again, verse seven. Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you. Do you see the contrast? Utterly different. He is saying, I don't deserve this. In fact, you know that Monopoly board with all that dosh? I'm gonna chuck it away. It is meaningless. Spiritually, I am bankrupt. It, it, it doesn't get me into your good book. It's not gonna work. I don't deserve it. He's saying, it's like Jesus is there, the star on center court, smashing it, ace after ace, boom, 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 like Djokovic is doing right now. He smashes it. And this guy, he's like, you know what, man? I cannot even get into the, I can't even get a ground ticket. I cannot get close. But, that's the great word. I love that word. The word but is amazing. Do you know that? It's Allah in the Greek, but but, verse seven, but say the word. And he'll be healed. Do you see the beautiful humility of faith? He has completely untethered his sense of confidence before God from himself and his own performance. He's saying, no, I'm going to stake myself entirely on Jesus Christ. Not my performance, but his power. Not my merit, but his mercy. Not how wonderful I am, but on how wonderful he is. That is the humility of faith. It is beautiful when you see it because it's so countercultural, so counterintuitive, and it's so stripping of our own self righteousness, our own approving ourselves. He refuses to do that. He says, No, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to put my trust there. I'm going to bank entirely on you, Jesus. 
And that actually wonderfully is, of course, the position of the Church of England. You know, 500 years ago, the wonderful Archbishop Thomas Crummer wrote these words in the Book of Common Prayer, which, let me read to you, that lovely prayer of humble access. Beautiful prayers, amazing. I recommend them to you. We don't presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We're not worthy so much to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Isn't that a wonderful but? And that is the heart of humble faith, staking on him everything, not ourselves. And we Londoners are self-sufficient, we prove it, we've made it, boom, 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 boom. (laughs) And Jesus says, stop it, just put down your boxing gloves. And let me welcome you on my terms of grace, not your terms of your own goodness. And we have to come back again and again and again to that lesson. And sometimes, as we said, Jesus will have to take us to that place of helplessness to get to that place of humility. And we hate that feeling, but it happens because he loves us too much to allow us to delude ourselves in thinking that we're okay in our own way talking to a friend recently about this wonderful truth that it's just by faith we come to God. He's been in church for years and as this penny is dropping, the word he used was, wow, this is liberating. I wonder if you and I, as a staff team, as a church family, there's riches here we need to keep diving deep in. Humility that comes from his mercy, not from our merits. That's the humility of faith. And thirdly and finally, there's hopefulness. There's the hopefulness of faith. Look how he continues. Remember verse um, seven. I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. But there it is again. Do you see he is utterly confident. You know what? Jesus Christ, he can do that just like that. That is faith, that is hope. You know, hope isn't wishful thinking. A sort of vague, easily we can think faith is like that. This sort of, yeah, yeah, I hope it's gonna, yeah, I hope it's gonna, yeah, I hope it's not gonna rain later. Yeah, 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 maybe Murray will win. Oh no, he won't actually, whoops. Um, Maybe Djokovic, you know, know, we put our hopes here and there and there. But actually Christian hope, no, it's, it's an assured confidence. It's a hearty conviction in who Jesus is. His power and his kindness and his mercy. It, fa- it looks outside of itself to him. That's what faith does. There is no one like him, as we'll see. Because just say the word and he'll be healed. This guy's not even like, you know what, Jesus, can you come on, come on down, come to my place. If you just, just put your hands there, do a special prayer, we'll light some candles, you know, maybe then. No, just, just, we can be miles away, just say the word, he'll be fine. Amazing trust in the word of Jesus. And of course, well, we've sung about it already. That word of Jesus Christ is unstoppable, unbreakable. So Genesis 1 and 2, let there be light, God said. And there was light. See, the word of Christ, you can't stop it. It it always does something. 
Even this morning, we're sitting here all very comfortably, but the word of God, as we come to it again, it is always doing something. Isaiah 55 tells us, the word of God never returns empty. It's always either hardening or softening my heart. Every time. Such is the word and the uniqueness and the authority of Christ's word. You know how it is with your Alexa. Some of you have Alexas. You know, that box technical thing which is in your house and you tell it to do stuff and it turns on the the music I didn't know I had one in my house and I just said the word Alexa my flatmate must have it and then just sort of jumped out of my seat this Alexa started talking to me so I had a lot of fun actually Alexa um play this and it played that Alexa do the dishing no didn't do the washing up actually didn't do that but some things you do tell it to do and it does it it's like Djokovic later or right now ball boy towel no, not that ball, that ball. Boom, boom, boom. His word does stuff. It achieves what it sets out to do. And so to here with Jesus. And the centurion gets this. You know, he knows what words do. So he is a centurion. He tells his 80 blokes, look, you guys, quick march. They quick march. These blokes, I want you to guard that city. They guard that city. He knows what it is to be under and to, have with, to be one with authority. And he is someone who's come to that place and looking at Jesus Christ and saying, wow, you have this authority that I do not have and not one of us has. Such that Jesus Christ, he thinks and knows and believes that illness there, if you want it, you can send it away. Like a dog playing fetch, you can send it away with just a word. That is his hopefulness in his faith. Remarkable. And of course it's well placed because of course the servant is healed. But so too is the widow's son. Do you remember how that happened there? Verse 14. He went up and touched the beer, the the sort of coffin that they were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I tell you, get up. And... The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. The tenderness amidst the power. Amazing, isn't it? But in the Greek, it's the same word as wakey-wakey. So when you have your little toddler at your nap time, well, to be honest, we all have not. We have nap times, don't we, Jamie? Staff siestas we have every day, two till four o'clock. You're very welcome to join us. But, but when you're having a nap... Like Jamie models so well for us, so often. What, what, what I do is I go into Jamie's office and I say, wakey, wakey, Jamie. No, no, that's what Jamie does to his son, Rupee, to be honest. But all you need is just a little wakey, wakey, and the toddler's up, isn't he, or she? Just a little tap. And the amazing thing about this passage, and later in Luke, we see that is the same with Jesus himself. To him... Death itself, that great enemy that our culture cannot bear talking about, even after COVID, to him, it's just wakey-wakey. And the young man is healed and alive again. Simply through the power of his word. It's amazing. And so in a minute, we'll sing, who silences storms? Who raises the dead? Whose word has the power to heal and restore? Only Jesus Christ. His words are out of this world and they're there for me and you that's hopefulness of faith 
And that's fine for then. We might be thinking, okay, that was a nice first century story. But what about us? Because there'll be things that you and I have been praying for, perhaps healings we've longed for. What about that? And I, of course, Jesus Christ still does heal. You know, if you're just looking into the Christian faith, Christianity is unashamedly supernatural. God himself is above nature. He's the author and sustainer of the laws of nature. So it's not difficult for him to intervene if he wants to. That's his prerogative. No, supernatural is part of Christianity. And he can heal with miraculously. He can heal in his common grace through medicine and medics and doctors and nurses and so on. It's still him bringing the healing hand. But of course, there'll be times when we pray and we pray and we pray. And instead of a yes, we get a no. What do we do then? When, what do we do then when we're not like the centurion, when we're not like the widow with a great success story? Because that heartbreak will be there soon enough. I think of a little friend of mine called Nigel. This is 10 years ago, eight years old at my old church. And um, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And for months and months and months, it stayed and it got worse and worse and worse. And he and his family and us as a church, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. But it got worse and worse and worse. And a couple of weeks before he died, I went to see him on his hospital bed. He hardly said a word, too weak. And uh, sat on his bed and we read the um, Jesus storybook Bible, you know, the story, the true story of Jesus and his own resurrection, where because of his risen life, we too can know life with that wonderful phrase, was God really making everything sad come untrue? Was he making even death come untrue? And we sat on his bed and I said, little Nigel, you know, your body and my body and you know our world, it's like this satsuma that is, and I got a satsuma out and I broke it up like this. I said, your body and the pain you experience, it's broken just as our whole world is broken and groaning and yearning. But then I said, but because of Jesus' own resurrection, there's a hope that you and I have that one day, one day, Jesus Christ will come and he will make whole again your body and our broken world. That is Christian hope. It's not groundless, vague, wishy-washy. It's trusting in Christ's risen life. And his promise to make all things new again. Such that at the end of the Bible we have this wonderful, beautiful promise like no other. Revelation 21. God's dwelling is now with his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has gone away. That is Christian hope. It's, it's about the then as well as the now. And so for the Christian, it, as we pray, it might be a no that we get. No, I'm not going to give healing right now, Jesus says. But it's actually 
The last word is never no for the believer. It's not yet because of that day to come, Christ's own return and renewal of all things as he sweeps up his bride to be with him for all eternity. And Nigel and his family have had to cling on to that hope, that confidence like never before amidst their helplessness. And we too need to do that again and again. And so that means those times of healing that we do experience, you know, those are, those are, like, are, are like film trailers for the great showing of the film to come in a couple of months. You know when you watch that advert and the film's coming, it's on the way. It's younger, the whole thing, it's coming. That's what the healings in Luke's gospel and elsewhere are about. Not just proofs of Jesus' identity, but also um, um, uh, pointers to what it'll be like when he returns. It's like that barbecue that you'll be having next week, which you smell. It's not yet ready, but the smell's there. You know it's coming. Well, so too with the healings. Something wonderful is coming. Just sit tight and wait and trust and lean. Which means those times when healing doesn't come and we do get the answer, no, Those are the times, more than ever, like stepping stones that we need to treat such times as as sort of homing beacons for our true home. When the groaning will be over, when the tears will be no more, that is Christian hope then. And this centurion has begun to get it. (laughs) That is why Jesus marvels at him. Because he simply trusts in Christ and his word. (laughs) Beautiful, isn't it? And we're all called to do the same. And as we close, can I just say, of course, we see here in this passage, Jesus, he's he's not immune or indifferent to that helplessness or that suffering or that heartache we have. He's not not immune because that hand that touched the bile with the the boy's body, soon enough, that hand will have nail prints in it. This is a God who in Christ knows what it is to suffer. He knows your heart break better than yours, better than you do. He's been there. He's not immune from suffering. He can be with you in it. Not immune, but nor indifferent. It's not just a GP you go and see who ticks you off, job done. Look at his whole being. And with this we close. Look at verse 13. And let this be the word to carry you this morning and this week. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? You know, Hitchens and Dawkins, for all their intellect, say the hard reality is, as Dawkins put it, blind, pitiless indifference. But for the Christian, at the hard reality, well, it is his heart, a heart that goes out to those in their brokenness and heartache and helplessness. There, Jesus Christ meets us. See, the heart of faith is not about me stirring up faith in myself. I've got to be really humble now. I've got to be really helpless. No, faith is about looking outward, not to my heart, but to his. A heart that goes out to you and to me afresh this morning. With your, whether you're passionate for the Lord this morning or to be on. To be honest, just not fussed about him. For all of us, his heart goes out to us. That is what grace is. That's what, who Jesus is. And we're called again to just <laughs> receive again his loving heart to us.
I wonder what that will look like for you this week, to, to remind yourself that his heart goes out for you. Before you lift a finger, his heart is for you in Christ. The helplessness of faith, the humility of faith, and the hopefulness of faith.